thousands of children are school striking for the climate on the streets of Brussels. Hundreds of thousands are doing the same all over the world. Let's flood the world of climate activists. Let's get out of the zones of convenience and join forces and start taking ourselves more seriously. Welcome to our podcast. We are historians for future, and we want to know what historians and other researchers or activists have to say about a climate emergency, our history and our future. Our aim is to provide a historical perspective on the climate and biodiversity crisis we are facing. How did we get here and where might we go? Hello, my name is Isa and joining us today is Chaiti Rowan, who is Assistant Professor of African and African-American Studies in the School of Social Transformation at Arizona State University. For our topic, a history of environmental activism, we are thrilled to be talking to Chaiti about his research on black ecologies and why black perspectives matter in understanding and addressing the climate emergency we're facing. Chaiti, welcome. Now, as a scholar of African African American studies, what do you care about the future? Um, I think, you know, I think the field of African American studies kind of really emerges out of the question of the future, right? And I think um, the environment has always been central to that. Um, I think not always kind of front loaded in that way, um, mainly because, you know, sometimes issues have been more pressing, but I think Black Studies calls for us to see the connections between, you know, ecocide, slavery, um, imperialism, and violence. And so, I think, yeah, I think um, Black Studies is, has always been kind of central to thinking out our way outside of these kinds of formations. Yeah. Now, you said that you're not strictly speaking a historian, but you're a trained historian. So let me ask you, do you, as a historian, think the past is important to tackle the climate crisis? Certainly, yes. I think we're at a current moment um, you in, the, in the US and in the global context where, you know, except for explicit deniers, everyone is kind of clear that there is a climate crisis, right? Um, but I think so much is hidden under um, terms like, um, you know, climate change uh, or Anthropocene. Those are euphemisms if we're being kind of straightforward. Um, euphemisms for ongoing legacies and the histories of slavery and extractionism um, and, and those attendant violences. Um, I don't think there, there's not a real clear line between say genocide, ecocide and imperialism. And I think um, in order to really gain analytic purchase on the moment in the present, we have to go back to those histories. We have to see that, for example, uh, the Industrial Revolution is impossible without cotton, and its historical formation is impossible without cotton, which is, of course, impossible without slavery, so in, in the way that it played out historically. So I think, yeah, history is, is vital for charging our contemporary discussions in ways that 
um, that really opened them up to the full complexity of what is going on, what the climate is actually embodying, right? Um, how, how the atmosphere, as you know, to kind of riff off Christina Sharp, the atmosphere itself is anti-Black, right? We have to account for that, so. <laughs> Just um, you know, one concept, ecocide, maybe for those um, listeners out there who are not quite familiar with the term, what do you mean by ecocide and why is it important to use it? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think it's, ecocide is a continuum of kind of violences against, um, you know, space, the material aspects of space and geographies human but also include beyond you know including more than human um other species life um other you know other kinds of environments that may or may not have human um life in them and ecocide is on a continuum as i said with i think um genocide herbicide these other formations that um that eviscerate the kind of means of living within a space um or the kinds of dynamics um, that make a space viable and organic. Um, you know, we're at a tipping point from what I've heard um, from some of my organizing friends. Um, you know, we're at a tipping point in, in the sense that there is more built material on the planet than there is organic material on the planet per, in, in terms of weight. Um, so that's what I mean by ecocide. When we've displaced our, the organic processes of earth, which includes, humans and and everything else when we replace that with um with synthetic environment and a synthetic environment that's what i mean by ecocide that that formation cannot sustain life human or otherwise so hopefully that makes some sense and i think i mean in relation to the black communities ecocide is um very directly tied to in the u.s and america's context tied to slavery right um you know who was clearing the forest for monoculture, who was filling the swamps, um, it was forced black laborers, right? So um, I think ecocide and, ecocide and racism are um, co-dependent in this context. Thank you. Now we've talked, um, you know, in a more general sense about the importance um, of applying an ecological perspective to history and going beyond that. And what is it you do? So what's your own research? Yeah, um, currently I'm hoping to, hoping to hurry up and finish a book called Dark Agora, Dark Agora's Insurgent Black Social Life and the Politics of Place. Um, the, the book really starts um, with, with um, Virginia and the kind of Chesapeake region um, looking at the plot and plotting as a kind of counterforce to enclosure and ecocide under plantation regimes. Um, and I, I think that plotting, I draw on Sylvia Winter and thinking about um, these modes of Black engagement with geography and with, um, and, and with space and with the environment that exceed um, profitability as a motive and that hold on to, you know, as Winter describes, use value or other kinds of value in relation to earth and waterscapes, um, land and waterscapes. Um, and I, I look at how that plays forward in, um, in through the great migrations, right? Across the kind of um, radical sort of um, 
rending of you know post-emancipation landscapes after the civil war and the rise later in the after the 1870s the 1880s the rise of jim crow and a new round of racist racialized enclosure i look at the ways that migrants take these visions for alternative space and environment to to urban spaces right um and and chart the ways that those continue to shape black politics in a place like particularly Philadelphia up through the 1970s and 80s. Um, you know, with, for example, the book ends with the emergence of MOVE, the organization that the Philadelphia Police Department bombed in 1985, who were considered rad radical naturalists. Um, you know, so that's the kind of trajectory that I'm thinking through. Um, and I think, you know, I think there are lots of different uh, black, I think we have part of the issue is I think we have to see black politics as environmental politics almost inherently. I don't want to say completely a one-to-one -one relationship, um, but when black people are resistant, extractive violence, that's an environmental politics in history. When black communities are resistant displacement, that it, and herbicide, that's an environmental politics and and. Um, even though we have tended to, at least in the U.S. context, to view those as separate modes, right? So that's kind of um, a broad overview of the word. And um, reading through your publications, um, a concept that appears again and again is uh, Black ecology or Black ecologies. Could you tell us something about um, the term, the concept, and how you use it? Yes, thank you. Um, you know, Nathan Hare wrote in The Black Scholar in like 1970, the term Black ecology. So I definitely don't have any kind of proprietary relationship with it. I want to make sure that that's clear. Um, but Black, black Ecologies for Justin Hosby and I, who've been working together, an anthropologist at Emory University and I, who've been working together through this framework, we understand it on the one hand as a way of encapsulating the reality of black vulnerability diasporically, right? Not only in the US South context in which we mostly write together about um, between New Orleans and Virginia, but also um, in the Caribbean and in the African context and beyond, you know, the the kind of um, pre the the predisposition that's built into our landscapes and waterscapes for black communities to be vulnerable to toxic dumping, to extractionism, um, to rising water if, on, in coastal communities, et cetera. On the other hand, black ecologies for us names, um, the kind of insurgent knowledges that come out of that relation, right? The kinds of, uh, and the politics that emerge from those relations. So for us, it also includes um, myriad resistances, some of them explicitly environmental, um, some of the some of the kind of intellectual histories explicitly environmental folks like June Jordan, who are not just they're trained and writing directly into environmental discourse, but also kind of everyday practices right of, of surviving and of thriving and creating community in a context in which um, in many instances nothing was supposed to live right. Um, and and certainly not black people weren't supposed to live and thrive, right? So that's that do that black ecologies for us holds that duality or dynamic or dialectic together. And would you say you know using the concept of black ecologies is actually some is it some sort of environmental activism too? So not just content wise or perspective wise, but as a 
you know, as a as something you do as an academic doing. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, we're drawn on a long legacy. I think it is it is very unfortunate that the environmental movement and, you know, and as it emerged in the 1970s in the US context, very rarely um, centered black people and almost, you know, and for many reasons, and we could talk more about, especially through conservationism, um, have come to see themselves as antagonistic to black and indigenous communities in this context. Um, you know, rather, rather than seeing the kind of totality between um, extractionism, violence, and black death, um, and ecocide, you know, have have tended to kind of parse those as separate categories of what's going on. And I think black ecologies as a kind of, for us as a kind of insurgency within in our work in the environmental humanities, um, where I think, again, you know, at least in the US context, black, I mean, environmental studies um, is immediately heard as white, right? Um, immediately excludes, um, you know, not only black practitioners of everyday resistances to ecocide and, and violence and that and extractionism, but also, um, you know, explicit environmental critiques like Nathan Hare or June Jordan or many other many others. So hopefully that we're, we're trying to encourage a, an insurgency through this framework within the environmental humanities. And again, alongside many others, you know, we're not alone. Um, the dark, uh, Tauli Goff's dark laboratories um, at, um, at Cornell and others have, have, are also engaged in this work. Mm -hmm. And um, picking up one example you've, uh, you've worked on, um, black anti-growth activism as a historical case. Could you tell us something about that? Yeah, I think that's part of my the first book project. I think Black um, communities who move um, to the urban north, for example, to Philadelphia, to the industrial metropolis, create these, um, these political and social communities that are um, sometimes implicitly anti-growth and sometimes very explicitly. Um, and I think that shifts over time. I think, um, you know, for example, move, uh, the organization that's founded in 1972 um, by the followers of John Africa in, in and or AKA Vincent Lephart in Philadelphia embracing an explicit anti-growth politics, right? They say that the the what they call the world reform system or the reform world system, um, which is their name for the state um, financial markets and all, all kinds of modes of extractionism and violence in politics, like that that is tied to not only hu black human death in, in the context of West Philly where they're founded, but also global death of all species populations, right? So I think, um, but I think there are more, I think anti-growth politics in everyday black life is, um, is has been marked in, at least in the US and plantation societies in general as for example, black laziness or some desire not to be engaged or whatever. Um, but I think these are, they're critical, these are critical sites where leisure, pleasure and possibility have been forwarded over, um, over extractive violence, right? Over industrial production 
and it's kind of synthetic um, and what it, the kind of synthetic world that it produces. Um, so that's kind of, I think for me, um, black life in the US context and plantation context in the Americas more broadly um, have often an implicit anti-growth politics that's marked as a desire for, for no labor, et cetera. Um, so hopefully that makes some sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are at the end of our 15 minutes. Okay. Maybe in one sentence, what's your takeaway message for our listeners out there? Um, center, center Black histories and ongoing Black organizing efforts at the same time that we are centering um, certain kinds of activists and organizers in this moment, I think it's really important to center and uplift Black and Indigenous um, communities who have been in these kinds of struggle, protracted struggles across several centuries, actually. Um, so really, really before jumping headlong into a notion of the environmental movement as singularly led by white folks or singularly led by Western Europe or, or North America, that we should really think um, very seriously about um, Black communities and their relationships um, to these histories and ongoing resistances. JT, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.